Our second reading this morning comes to us from the book of Haggai, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, and chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Let's listen again for a word from God. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of that month, the word of the Lord came, to the, came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoizadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses when this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, and no one is warm. And you that earn wages, earn wages to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You have looked for much, and lo, it has come to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because my house lies in ruins while all of you hurry off to your own houses. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the soil produces, on human beings and animals, and on all of their labors. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, and Joshua, son of Jehoizadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of the prophet Haggai, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehoizadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides with you. Do not fear. The word of the Lord. Our director of music ministries, Anne-Marie, always leaves right before the sermon. I'm trying not to take it personally. Uh, I did once have an organist who would go out and smoke a cigarette during the sermon. And I had to say to that person, look, when you're playing, I'm going to look fascinated, and I expect the same from you. 
Um, but Anne-Marie actually goes out and works with Millie uh, every Sunday to uh, our children sing so and learn songs of the faith for about 15 minutes, and then they go off to their Sunday school classes, and it's a really, really important ministry, which we've just implemented. So that's great. Um, thank you. I'm very grateful to Graham for reading all those names. Let's pray. May the meditations of our hearts together this morning, O oh God, on your word to us be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Zerubbabel, Sheatel, Jehozadak. <clears throat> Excuse me. Which reminds me of John Updike, one of the great American writers of all time, if not the greatest. By coincidence, the grandson of a Presbyterian minister. I'm Updike, Irving, I don't know. Uh, they're, they're amazing. Um, John Updike, Updike has written so many books. I have a shelf for John Updike. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, but one of my favorite books, which he uh, wrote later in his career before he passed away, um, entitled In the Beauty of the Lilies. That's a line from uh, uh, Onward Christian Soldiers. I think it's the beginning of the second or third verse. Uh, a major character in that novel, In the Beauty of the Lilies, is a Presbyterian minister. He likes to pick on Presbyterians because he is a grandson of one. Uh, a Presbyterian by the name of Clarence Wilmot, uh, who's Princeton educated and has all the right credentials and is a good, solid, reliable pastor, is lacking one essential thing, not unlike the attorney, the lawyer who challenged Jesus one day and said, I do all the things, I keep all the commandments, and Jesus goes, that's great, but you lack one thing, go sell all you have and follow me. And the faithful, religious, honorable, moral, ethical attorney couldn't do that. Just couldn't. Clarence Wilmot, the pastor, lacked one thing. Rather than depending on God and on God's spirit to lead him every day into the mysteries of faith and revelation, the Reverend Wilmot falls prey to the temptation that gets us all sooner or later and over and over again. Clarence Wilmot substituted moralism and religious activity, living a good life, being a good person, being a good mom or dad, whatever it is, a good employee, for listening for God, looking for God, expecting something from God, something new. So the Reverend Clarence Wilmot, Presbyterian pastor, stopped asking questions of God, stopped arguing with God, being honest with God, being close to God, like any good relationship is filled with these honest, sometimes arguments, sometimes intense depth, questions of depth where things are discovered between the two parties. Wilmot stopped doing that. In other words, the Reverend Clarence Wilmot, Presbyterian pastor, stopped working and building on the one thing that holds everything else together in his life. And he was relieved when he finally admitted to himself that he no longer really believed in God, even though he was still a pastor, still a Presbyterian minister. Eventually, in Updike's novel, In the Beauty of the Lilies, Wilmot leaves the ministry and he begins peddling encyclopedias to poor people who need better jobs more than they need encyclopedias. This is before Google. Wilmot has absolutely no passion now for anything except for money and for sex, which for him, as for so many people, has become a substitute for God. 
Clarence stopped trusting God, but he didn't stop working. He didn't stop sort of doing everything on the surface. We're all doing that. We're all working on something. We're all very, very busy, just like him. Even if we're doing nothing, we're doing something. Even if we're saying nothing, we're making a statement, right? Think about the elections in a couple of days. Think about the issues that are before us, the threats just a few days ago here in New Jersey to synagogues across the state. It's up to us to stand against racism, bigotry, hate, even if it doesn't affect us directly, because that's what God does for us and on our behalf. Clarence Wilmot, the very busy pastor, and it's a busy life. When I started in this ministry, my dad said, well, you can get another job. You only work one day. Actually, no. No. He was busy, but he wasn't really working on anything meaningful anymore. And here's how Updike describes the death of the Reverend Clarence Wilmot. He slipped away as an unmoored boat on an outgoing tide. In other words, he spent so much time focused on himself there at the end that he lost himself. Reminds me of Updike, Haggai, one of the 12 minor prophets, but also one of the shortest books in the entire Bible. If you resolve to read a book of the Bible before the end of the day, you couldn't really go wrong with Haggai. It might take you about five minutes, no more. There's no biographical info about this guy, Haggai. We don't really know how to pronounce his name. There's even, as there is most of the other prophets, there's no, there's no uh, native king, meaning Israelite or Judean king, with whom to locate Haggai. Most prophets begin in the second year of King Jehoshaphat, you know, jumping Jehoshaphat, whatever. But here, there's no, we don't have that. So the author, whoever it is, has to locate Haggai the prophet with a foreign king, King Darius of Persia, today's Iran. Darius, who was this, came after the great King Cyrus, who liberated the captives in exile. That exile had seemed like it would never end. Went on and on and on. The people were suffering. They were dislocated. They were far from home. And most of the Old Testament prophets, including the minor prophets, like the big boys, Jeremiah and Isaiah, but the small ones too, like Micah and Malachi and Hosea, they kind of are focused around the time when Assyria or Babylon destroys the Holy Land for the first time. And ultimately, the temple of God, Solomon's temple. Haggai is a little different. Two-chapter Haggai. Haggai does do what the other prophets do. He says, he reminds people using the voice of God through his own writing or speaking that God is saying to us always, hey, I was with you yesterday and I'm with you today. Even in exile, I'm with you. Haggai adds a piece that the others don't. Haggai says, I was with you yesterday, and I'm with you today, and I'm going to be with you tomorrow. So start working on tomorrow. Start building something solid for yourself. Start focusing on what's going to anchor you in life and not have you running on a hamster wheel of meaninglessness. In other words, start building towards something beyond yourself 
so you can find yourself. Hear those words again in our verses. In the second year of King Darius the Persian, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Consider how you have fared. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you're never full. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And you earn wages, but you might as well put them into bags with holes. That's how Sarah and I feel pretty much at the end of every month, actually, when the credit card bills are due. Everybody's doing pretty well. The exiles are back in Haggai. They've come back from Babylon. They've been liberated. Everybody's kind of focusing on themselves. Did you hear the phrase paneled houses? If you're from the 70s, you know what I mean, right? Everybody's basement had paneled, wood paneling and orange carpet. Shag, of course. But God, through Haggai, says, it's not about yesterday, it's not about today. I want you to focus now on tomorrow. Start building something solid for yourself. Even though things are seem like we're doing, we're doing pretty well again. We've come out of this pandemic, right? The pews are sort of filling up. I was thinking as the church was starting that if you're kind of but depending on your political inclination, is it a good sign or a bad sign that the left side has way more people than the right side? I don't know. Depends on who you are, I guess. Get to work on what matters. Haggai's message to the people is start building God's temple, the second temple, the ruined basement of which is all we have left now in Jerusalem. Start building God's second temple, a place where you can look for God a place where you can be found by God, a home for God and for you that will never leave you. Get to work. And my personal response to that message from this prophet is, get to work? I'm very busy already. Do I need more work? I've, I teach, I I teach part-time and I'm a counselor to, to you, seminary students. I have no time for this job, this second job I do, because I have a full-time job. And my full-time job is, you know, more than 40 hours probably, and it sort of starts and stops whenever it feels like. Uh, I've got two kids. Uh, one of them still expects me to drive them everywhere and never tells me exactly when I'm supposed to be where until, I'm, where are you? I don't even know where I was going. I haven't gotten to all the things that need to get done, the basement, and by, I get reminded of that all the time. I won't tell you by whom. The closets, the leaves in the gutters, the mutual fund that's tanking. There's a lot of things I need to do. I'm busy. We're all busy. We're all working. But Haggai wants to know, what are we working on today? That's the stewardship question every year. What matters to you? Every year about this time, God asks us that question over and over again. Why are we working like we are, going in circles? So busy, yet just as empty, maybe, and restless as ever. Why are we working like we are? I am not a big fan of YouTube animal videos, but just this last week, I don't like cat videos, I like cats. But I did see a cute uh, video this week, by the way, because my new computer thing has a Bing, puts all these stories and clickbait in front of me. A bear dancing, which is pretty good. 
but the one I really like, which I want to tell you about, is a beaver building a dam in someone's kitchen. This beaver apparently is a pet, and in that little, there's a formica floor, and then, you know, the living, dining room, and the beaver was bringing pieces of whatever it could find and building a barrier between the kitchen and the dining room. And whoever was videoing it was chuckling and laughing. Uh, this beaver has got to work, even though what it's doing is useless and pointless. Because that's what beavers do, and of course, that's what we do as humans, too. We just keep working, sometimes not even knowing why. Haggai says, build something that matters. And he's not blowing smoke. He's not saying it's going to be easy. In fact, by definition, it's going to be harder than if you do nothing, which, by the way, as we've said, is doing something. Haggai says, it's not supposed to be easy, but God was with us yesterday. God's here right now today, and God promises to be with us tomorrow. Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, because I am with you. Build, because I am with you according to the promises I made to you way back when I saved you and liberated you from bondage in Egypt. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things you can't see, which is weird and strange. So faith isn't knowing stuff or believing stuff. Faith is doing stuff, whether you can see the outcome yet or not. Start building. Withdraw from the rat race. Jump off the hamster wheel. Any other rodent metaphors you can think of? But don't forget... And don't be naive enough to think that that doesn't take courage. It does. Coming home to today's church has to, means breaking certain patterns and cycles, routines, levels of comfort that we reach during scary times. It is time, Haggai says, to celebrate where we've arrived after going through tough times. It's time to dedicate ourselves to something new and to celebrate in so doing that God is with us tomorrow as much as today and yesterday. William Faulkner said, you cannot swim for new horizons until you have courage to lose sight of the shore. You can't. Nothing new is going to happen if you stay close to shore. Harper Lee, courage is when you know you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway and see it through no matter what. As Graham knows, and I'm sure has framed on his wall in our class on the polity a year ago that he took, we studied and celebrated this sentence from our Presbyterian Book of Order. The church is to be a community of faith entrusting itself to God alone, even at the risk of losing its life. The church is to be a community of hope, Rejoicing in the sure and certain knowledge that in Christ, God is always making a new creation. That is our Presbyterian credo. So come home today's church today. Come home to today's church tomorrow and the next day. We're all so crazy busy. We're all so crazy building what we don't need like that beaver. 
And so much of the time, we're surrounded by people, but we're alone in a crowd while we're doing it. That's how we feel. I love the quote at the top of your bulletin. I know, I hope you have the courage to start all over again. It's from Benjamin Button. And then finally, the words of one of my favorites who passed away during COVID, John Prine. Come on home, come on home. Oh, you don't have to be alone. Come on home. Amen. <laughs>